So as you can tell, Pastor Jackie's not here this evening. They're up um, at Pine. They're scaring the elk around. So hopefully, you know, one of them is dumb enough to run into one of their arrows. So, and they'll be back on Sunday. So um, tonight we're going to be in Malachi. It's actually the last chapter in the Old Testament. And uh, before I get started, we have a quick video I'd like to show just to kind of familiarize everybody with the book of Malachi and um, kind of the meaning behind it. So, there we go. Volume. Ago, and things were not going well. Just remember the stories from Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, when the Israelites first returned from exile, their hopes were high. They would return and rebuild their lives and the temple. All of the great promises of the prophets would come true. The Messiah would come and set up God's kingdom over a unified Israel and over the nations and bring justice and peace for all. But that's not what happened. The Israelites who repopulated the city proved to be just as unfaithful to God as their ancestors, resulting in poverty and injustice. And so in Malachi, we find out just how corrupt this new generation has become. The book's designed as a series of disputes, and most sections begin with God saying something, making a claim or an accusation, and then Israel will disagree or question God's statement. And then God will respond and offer the last word. This happens six times. In the first three disputes, God exposes Israel's corruption, and in the final three disputes, he confronts their corruption. And the overall impression you get from these arguments and disputes is that the exile fundamentally didn't change anything in the people. Israel's hearts are as hard as ever. The first dispute starts when God says that he still loves his covenant people despite their failures. And Israel rudely objects, saying, how have you shown us any love? And so God reminds them of how he graciously chose the family of Jacob, their ancestor, to become the carrier of God's covenant promises, instead of Esau, his brother, and the family that came from him, who eventually came to ruin. Remember the stories from Genesis and the book of Obadiah. And so right from this first dispute, Israel is exposed as suspicious doubting God's love and faithfulness. The second dispute exposes a problem with Israel's second temple. God accuses the people of despising and defiling the temple. And the people fire back, how have we despised you? And so God responds by focusing on the people, how they're bringing shamefully lame offerings of these sick, blemished animals that show that they don't value or honor their God. But it's not just the people, it's the priests too who run the temple. They not only tolerate but participate in these corrupt forms of worship. From top to bottom, God's people have proven faithless. In the third dispute, God accuses the Israelite men of treachery against him and their wives, which of course they deny. And God exposes the toxic combination of idolatry and divorce taking place. You have Israelite men marrying non-Israelite women and then adopting the worship of their wives' ancestral gods into their homes. Remember the story from Nehemiah chapter 13. And so Malachi connects this to a wave of men divorcing their wives for no good reason. And the people are all fine with this. And Malachi says, no, it's a betrayal of your covenant with God. 
And so Malachi transitions into the second set of disputes that confront Israel's rebellion. So the fourth dispute begins with the Israelites accusing God of neglect, saying, where is the God of justice? They see injustice and corruption abounding, and God seems to do nothing. So God responds by saying that he'll send a messenger who will prepare the people for God's personal return in the day of the Lord. He will come like fire to purify his people and to remove idolatry and sexual immorality and injustice so that only the faithful remnant is left to become his people. In the fifth dispute, God calls the people to turn back to him, to which the people say, how can we turn back? And so God confronts their selfishness. He shows how they've stopped offering a tithe of their income to the temple. Now, that word tithe just means one-tenth. It's the amount of their income and produce that the Israelites were to annually donate to support the temple and its priests. The practice is laid out in different parts of the Torah. Now, we know from Malachi and from the book of Nehemiah that the people were neglecting this responsibility. And so the temple was falling into disrepair. And so God confronts them. He says he wants to bless them with abundance, but only if they're going to be faithful. In the final dispute, the people accuse God and say that it's pointless to serve him. They observe wicked, prideful people succeeding in life, and God does nothing. And God's response, for the first time in the book, is not a speech, but rather a short story about the faithful remnant in Israel, people who fear the Lord, and they love to get together and talk about how to honor God and serve him. And so God orders that a scroll of remembrance be written for these people so that they can read the scroll and remember God's character and promises. Malachi, he's reflecting here on the divine gift of the scriptures, how they point us to the past to remember what God has done in order to inspire faithfulness and hope for the future. Which leads to the conclusion of the book. It picks up and develops the imagery of the fourth dispute about the coming day of the Lord, but it develops it further. God says that he's appointed a day of purifying judgment that will consume the wicked from among his people. But what the conclusion adds is the future of the faithful remnant. Because for them, the day of the Lord is not a threat. It's a cause for joy. It'll be like the rays of the rising sun that bring healing and life and hope for the future. And so Malachi's disputes come to a close, but there's still a bit more to this book. The final three verses, they're not part of the disputes, and actually they function like a concluding appendix, bringing closure not just to Malachi, but to the whole collection of the Torah and the prophets. So first, the reader is called to remember the law, or the Torah, of my servant Moses. This recalls the story and the laws of the covenant that you find in the first five books of the Bible. But then we hear this summary of the books of the prophets. I will send the prophet Elijah before the day of the Lord, who will restore the hearts of God's people. So this conclusion, it summarizes the Torah and the prophets as a unified story that points to the future. Israel was redeemed by God, and then they betrayed him through their rebellion and hard hearts, breaking the laws of the Torah. But the scriptures anticipate a future day when God's going to send a new prophet, a Moses, a new Elijah, who will restore God's people and heal their hard hearts. Remember all of the promises from Deuteronomy and Jeremiah and Ezekiel. And so this concluding appendix presents the scriptures as a divine gift to read and to ponder and to pray over. They tell the truth about the human condition, about our selfishness and our sin. But they also announce God's promise that one day he would send a messenger and then show up personally to confront evil, to restore his people and bring his healing justice. And it's that future hope that Malachi and the Torah and all of the prophets 
are about. There we go. All right. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we just thank you for this evening, Lord. I just thank you for allowing us to gather here freely and free of persecution, Lord God. I just pray that you meet us here in this place tonight, Lord, and just may your word be taught. Will you open ears and hearts and minds tonight, Lord God, so your words would be received. I pray, Lord, that we'll leave here differently, Lord, and as... uh, We talk about a message of religion versus relationship, Lord. I just pray that uh, you just prepare our hearts for that. May you decrease me and may you be increased. In Jesus' name, amen. So um, before we get started, let's talk about who is Malachi. Um, Malachi was a prophet of the Lord. So in the Old Testament, um, God would use prophets to speak to the kings and to his people. Not a very fun job. Nobody wants the job of telling the king that he's dumb and he's doing things wrong, right? So prophets was a, was a hard job to have, but, you know, it was a needed job, and God used these people to um, tell them what they were doing wrong. And the same goes with Malachi. Malachi, he, uh, Malachi in Hebrew means messenger, and so Malachi was a messenger from God to his people, Um, Malachi is also the last book in the Old Testament. Um, After that, there was 400 years of silence. Um, Just a neat little fact. The earliest found manuscript of Malachi is from uh, 150 B.C. And so uh, there is original manuscripts of Malachi that are out there. So just food for thought. Um, The prophet Malachi wrote at a time when the nation of Israel faced a major problem. The people of God had grown complacent in their worship, failing into trapping of religion rather than working in genuine relationship with God. And what does that mean? What does it mean to be religious but not have a relationship with God? Um, That's what we're going to talk about tonight, and hopefully um, by the end of this evening we'll we'll have a clear view of what that means and how it should look. Um, As people examine how Malachi addressed Israel's half-hearted worship of God, they can learn to identify unhealthy religious tendencies in our own lives, and we can be encouraged to pursue the kind of sincerity God calls us to, the, to develop and demonstrate. Um, so let's start in Malachi 1. The burden of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. And it starts off... Um, I don't know if you guys ever started off a conversation like this, but um, I know if Jackie ever calls me into the office and he starts out by saying, I love you, that means this, this conversation is going to hurt a little bit, right? So um, that's what God is relaying here to Malachi. He loves his people, right? There's no doubt that he loves his people, but they're not doing the things they're supposed to do. 
Okay, so he's going to have to come down on him. And that's, uh, that's where we start here. Uh, verse 2, I have loved you, says the Lord, but his people say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. If Edom says we are scattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says they may build, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country. And the people with whom the Lord is angry forever, for your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, Great is the Lord beyond the borders of Israel. A son honors his father, and a servant his master. If then I am a father... Where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? Says the Lord of hosts to you. O priest, who despise my name? But you say, how have we despised your name? By offering polluted food upon my altar. But you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised. When you offer blind animals and sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that, present that to your governor. Will he accept you or show you favor, says the Lord of hosts? And now, entreat the favor of God, that he may be gracious to us. With such a gift from your hand, will he show favor to any of you, says the Lord of hosts? Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the door, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept Accept an offering from your hand. For from the rising of the sun to the setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name and a pure offering. For my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. But you profane it when you say that the Lord's table is polluted and its fruit. That is, its fruit may be despised. But you say, what a weariness this is, and you snort at it, says the Lord of hosts. You bring what has been given by violence, or is lame or sick, and this you bring as your offering. Shall I accept that from your hand, says the Lord? Cursed be the cheat who has a male in his flock and vows it, and yet sacrifice to the Lord what is blemished. For I am a great king, says the Lord of hosts, and my name will be feared among the nations. So as we read that section of scripture, what it's saying is, you know, the Israelites are coming out of exile. They were enslaved, uh, entrapped in Babylon. They were released. So they go back to their hometown, right? They start to rebuild the temple. Uh, about a hundred years after this is when this is taking place. So they've been there for about a hundred years. The temple's up. It's nowhere near the glorious structure it was before, but yet they still do the temple sacrifices. They have priests. They still do their festivals. But they're getting um, routine, right? They're not doing it with their whole heart. They bring lame animals when they're supposed to bring the best animals they have, right? We all have heard the saying, give your first fruit. Well, these people weren't given their first fruit. They were given their worst fruit, right? And God sees these things. And when we're not giving God the best that we have to offer, what does God think of that, right? He's not happy with that. He's not happy with his people. And so that's where we're at. And that's what Malachi is telling his people. Hey, guys, uh, you got to get it together, right? God gives you these animals. Just give back 
one. Right? God gives you this fruit. God gives you this harvest. Give back the best. Right? It's not because God needs it. It's just to show submission to God. Right? Are we for the world or are we for God? And this is one of the ways that we can show that to the Lord. So, um, so we're going to zero in on the various um, trappings of religion. Uh, through the prophet Malachi, God confronted the people of Israel for their sins of half-hearted, complacent worship. Right? It's just like um, here, you know, when we get up to worship. Are we singing? Are we giving praise? If Mike came up here and gave a half-hearted effort, we would all notice that, right? We'd all be like, wow, Mike's off today. What's, what's his deal? Okay? Luckily, we don't have to do that. That's how God sees us sometimes, right? When we come to church Wednesdays or Sundays, do we come to get fed or do we just show up um, out of habit or because it's the right thing to do? That's the difference between worship or a relationship and religion. Okay, if we just show up because we're supposed to, that's being religious. If we show up because we love Jesus and we want to get fed and we want to get closer to him, that's relationship. Okay? So, um, as Israel had returned from exile, the people had rebuilt the temple and reinstituted temple worship. Um, God reminds the people of Israel of his love and the relationship he'd had with them and then examines the way in which uh, Israel had not been returning that love by failing to give. Right, like I said in verse 2, it says, I have loved you. The very first part of this, the book, right, is I have loved you. Why haven't you loved me? Right, and what do they, what do they say? They're defensive right off the bat, right? Oh, well, how have you loved us? They ask. Okay. God says, well, is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord. What does he mean by that? Well, he, God chose Jacob. He didn't choose Esau. Okay, Jacob is their ancestors, Israel's ancestors, right? And so God's just telling them, look, I've loved you. I've chose you to be my people. And this is how you repay me with lame and poor um, offerings. And so God, Israel was simply going through the motions of temple worship. The people's hearts were not in it which resulted in mediocre, passionate worship, rather than offering God the best of their lives. They were content with simply doing the bare minimum rather than offering God the best of their livestock and crops in their sacrifice. They were offering lame and crippled animals to God, and they were worshiping God with their words and promises, but their actions did not line up. Okay, we, we tend to do that sometimes, right? We tend to say, yes, we're Christians, but then at the same time, when we have an opportunity to be Christ-like, sometimes we turn the other way or we um, cross the street so we don't run into a certain person, you know? So those are the things that we can see, the fruit that we can see from a person that has a relationship with Jesus or a person who's just religious. Um, God reminded the people... Of the greatness in all the earth and the level of honor that people should give, right? God, the creator of the universe, right? He made each and every one of us. He didn't think the world would be perfect without each one of you, right? And so the least we can do is just honor him um, with our whole hearts, you know? Um, and that's why he's so frustrated with his people, 
You know, he's taking them through all kinds of things, and yet his people still don't want to worship him properly. So um, let's go to verse 2. So with any relationship, right, God desires a genuine relationship with us. How do we start a relationship? Or what makes a good relationship? Um, For those of you that don't know, in 10 days, I'm getting married. And so for that to happen, right, we had to start a relationship. Now, can that relationship start with um, dishonor or disrespect? Of course not. If it did, then it would never grow into anything better, right? That's why it's important that we honor and respect, well, not only God, but other people and into our relationships, right? If not, then that relationship's not going to grow. If I don't respect her or if I don't honor her, then that relationship is going nowhere. Um, can we have a healthy Life-giving relationship if it, acts, if it lacks honor and respect. And that answer is no. We have to have honor and respect in our relationship with God and with other people. Correct? And so, um, have any of you ever experienced a time when you felt dishonored or disrespected? Um, and if you felt that way, how did that relationship turn out? Right? If you met somebody and you felt disrespected or dishonored do you continue in that relationship or do you cut that relationship off and go a different direction right how many times have we dishonored god right sometimes that's why we turn from god right sometimes our sinful nature will allow us to turn our backs on god and continue to sin and sin and sin instead of turning to god right and honoring god and repenting of our sins Um, Let's look closely at verse 2. In a book that is primarily primarily a heavy rebuke of sin, God starts by reminding his people how much he loves them. What does this say about who God is, right? It says, you know, I'm a loving God. I have loved you, says the Lord. And then that's when he begins to say, okay, look, this is what you guys are doing wrong. I love you. And so I want you to change, right? It's just like any good father who loves their son or daughter and, or mother. Um, and they want to not only discipline, but educate and encourage their children. Sometimes they have to sit them down and have that hard conversation, right? Sometimes they have to say, look, you're doing this wrong. Um, you're not doing your chores properly, okay? Instead of watering, putting the water in the trough, you're putting it in the ditch, right? We need the water in the trough so the animals can drink that water. So um, that's what God's doing here. He's a loving God, and he just wants to try to correct his people. And we are his people, right? God wants to correct us as well. This message is just not for the Jews of this time. The message is for us today as well. Um, Let's go ahead and look at verse 6. It says, a son honors his father. And uh, what human relationship does God compare his relationship with Israel to? It's a father and son, right? Or a mother and son, mother and daughter. What did this say about God's role in our relationship with him 
and what our relationship should be. It should be very close, right? Father and son, mother and daughter, mother and son, father and daughter. That's a very close bond that nobody can take away, right? Would you guys describe your relationship with Jesus as something like that? If not, right, we all have to work on that. We all have to work on our relationship with Jesus so we can say it's like father and son or like, you know, mother and daughter. Um, That's what God wants. God wants a relationship like that. Now, how does it make you feel to think about the possibility of God feeling dishonored or disrespected by you? I know to me, you know, uh, it hurts, right? God's a loving God. All he has ever done was give, 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 right? And then there's times where we dishonor him. We disrespect him. And we can correct that. And we should correct that, right? All we have to do is give him honor. Repent of our sins. You know, pray. We're going to talk a little bit about prayer tonight, too, if we have time. And uh, just go to show you... um, You know, how to honor God properly. So God desires a relationship over religion. Our lives should be a response to God's great love for us. When God has shown us such an amazing love, our response should be to love Him back and honor Him with our lives. If He is our loving Father, then we should respect Him as His children. If He is a loving Master, then we should serve Him with graciousness and reverence rather than simply going through religious motions. God is not interested in empty religious motions. So God doesn't care if you come to church every Sunday if you're not paying attention. He doesn't care if you're here every Wednesday if you're not paying attention, right? He would rather you be out on the mountain praising him, scaring elk, other than being here with your mouth, with your head in the mountains, right? God doesn't want empty religious motions. He wants that relationship with you guys. You can come to church every single day. But if your heart's not with Jesus, it's not going to make any progress. It's not going to make any, any way into God's heart at all. Um, so think of a time in your life when you had to do something, but your heart wasn't in it. How difficult was it to continue what you were doing? So for me, you know, each Wednesday I teach the kids. So I always try to prepare my lesson towards the kids and you know try to get them involved and so for me when i think about this when i do something that my heart wasn't in i always think back to when i was a teenager and i had to clean my room you know those are one of the toughest i don't know why it was hard right it takes like 15 minutes to do but it was such such a problem <laughs> i don't know why my mom had the hardest time trying to say hey just go clean your room and you'd always find a reason not to do it right um that's because our heart isn't in it. And sometimes that's how our relationship with Jesus can be too. If our heart's not in it, then what type of relationship is it at all? Right? If my heart isn't in a relationship with Amanda, then it's not going to uh, bloom and blossom into marriage. Right? If her heart wasn't into it, um, she probably wouldn't be sitting here today. Right? She would be somewhere else. And that's why we have to have our heart into it to start a good relationship with Jesus. Um, When we read verses 7 through 8, we can discover that people were were giving God crippled and maimed animals as sacrifices. And what's it say earlier off in the Old Testament? uh, We're supposed to give our first fruit, 
right? We're supposed to give the best that we have. Um, but they were giving lame, sick, even blind offerings. You know, what, what, what is that communicating to God? You know, um, how would you feel if you were supposed to get somebody's best and all they gave you was their very least, right? Um, it's not a good feeling. Disrespectful. Um, so if we look at verse 9, what effects does our hypocrisy have on how God responds to our prayers? Verse 9, it says, And now, entrust, entreat the favor of God that he may be gracious to us. So if we want to be half-hearted towards God and expect a whole-hearted God to return favor towards us, isn't that hypocrisy? Isn't it uh, selfish to think that we can just call on God when we want to and expect Him to deliver? Um, God loves us all the time, right? All the time He loves us. But He wants that relationship with us all the time as well. He doesn't just want to hear from us when we're in need. He wants to hear, thank you, right? He wants to hear us sing praises daily. He wants to just have that communication just like any other relationship how does a relationship start you have to talk right and how do we talk to god we pray right how else do we communicate with god how does god communicate to us through his word okay as we talk and we begin to talk a little bit more the relationship grows and it gets stronger and it gets better and it becomes easier to talk to one another when um, you first start talking to someone or to God, it's a little awkward at times, right? You don't know what to say. You don't know what to do. You have all these feelings. Well, when we come to pray, um, what does it mean to pray? What is prayer? And uh, I spent a, a while trying to find a good definition. I looked through books. I looked in Webster's Dictionary. I looked all these places and finally, you know, wouldn't you know, the answer is in Scripture, right? And so I came up with what my definition is. It is a intentional conveying a message uh, to God. And um, why don't I just say it's talking to God? Because if we look in Romans 8.26, it says, The Spirit helps us in our weakness. For we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So I take this to mean that uh, there are groans of our heart that the Spirit inspires that are sometimes wordless. Um, so prayer is usually talking to God, but there are times when you can't talk and can still pray. That is conveying a message to God. So there's times when we're so broken, we're so hurt, we're so sad that we don't have words to say, right? Does that mean we can't pray? No. We can still say Jesus and just open up to God, right? He knows our prayers. He hears our prayers. Um, and even in the scripture, it says, through the Spirit, He hears our groans as deep words. And so... Um, we don't always have to have the right words to say to God. We just have to be willing to say them, right? If uh, I asked you guys how much time do we spend in prayer each day, um, 
I know for myself it's not as much as I should, right? I should be praying, you know, three times a day, at least at least 10 minutes per time, and that would be 30 minutes a day. That still wouldn't be enough, right? Look at all the things God has done for us, all the things that God can help us with, but yet we don't even go towards him with those things. You know, um, we have a wedding coming up. We have people coming in from town, and um, there's been a lot of prayer. And it's great to know that there's a God there who God out there that listens, that wants to help, and is there to to help us with our with our every need. Um, but we just have to communicate with Him. So let's look at verse 11 real quick. And what does the word reveal about the importance of glorifying God through our worship? So if we look at verse 11, and it says, For from the rise of the sun to its setting, my name will be great among the nations. And in every place, incense will be offered to my name, and a pure offering for my name will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. So what God's doing here is he's telling his people, look, the whole world is going to worship me. And yet you guys still can't figure it out. I've done so many things for his people, right? He's talking to Israel, that is his people, and yet they still can't figure it out. But the whole world knows that he is God. In verses 12 through 13, we read how the people of Israel were not focused on giving God their best, which is what God had required. Instead, they were giving God their leftovers. Why do we do this sometimes? Um, We do this too, right? Sometimes we wake up late. What happens? Oh, I don't have time to pray. Let's just go. Well, then our day gets bad, right? get a flat tire or this thing happens or that thing happens and then we can all relay it back to not praying does god punish us if we don't pray no not at all but he does reward us for taking our time out for him right giving him our first fruit right first thing in the morning we get up hit the ground praise god for what he's done ask god to protect you through the day thank him for your family thank him for your friends and just give him the stresses of that day. Right? You give God your burden and he can carry them. He wants to hear from you. Right? Just like parents want to hear from their kids. Right? Don't don't you parents love to hear I love you from your kids once in a while? You know that they love you, but isn't it nice to um hear those words once in a while? That's how God feels too. You know, God wants to hear I love you once in a while. Just like parents want to hear, I love you once in a while as well. So God reminds Israel of his greatness. God is a great king who is famous in all the nation. God is seeking to be honored and worshipped by all his people. Israel, however, was dropping the ball. Rather than honoring God with the best sacrifices they could offer, the people were constant giving God the baseline minimum minimum. And their sloppy leftovers. The people had professed faith in God and worshipped Him with their words, but their actions did not sync up. As a result, God did not accept their worship. And that's that's tough, right? If we just half-heartedly give worship, is God going to accept that? The Creator of the universe does He have to accept our weak and our lame offerings? 
course not. Right? He makes it clear what he wants and what he will accept. Okay? And as we look into Matthew verse 7, um, verses 21 through 23, it'll tell you what will happen. You know, when our time here on earth is done and we meet him at the throne, what's he going to say? You know, is he going to say, well done? Or is he going to say, uh, depart from me, I never knew you? Okay? So my challenge is for you guys to all live a life where you know what God's going to say when you meet the end. Right? When you guys come to Jesus face to face, I pray that each and every one of you hear those wonderful words. Well done. Come on in. Right? Um, but to do that, we have to live wholeheartedly for Jesus. Right? We have to give him our lives. We have to give him everything. Right? We need to have a relationship with him and not just religion. Right? Religion is empty. Relationship is wholehearted and loving and caring and it works both ways. So if we read into Matthew seven, twenty one through twenty three. Give me just a second. And it says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But the one who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven, on that day many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness." So we can do a lot of things in God's name, but if it's half-hearted, right? If it's for the wrong reasons, if it's not for Jesus wholeheartedly, we're wasting our times, right? And we're fooling ourselves. We're not fooling God. God knows why we do the things we do. God knows why we come to church. God knows why um, we're here and why we're not here and our prayers, and our time in the Word. And He wants the best that we have to offer. He doesn't want all our time. He just wants quality time, right? He just wants a few minutes in the morning. He wants a little time at lunch, and He wants some time, you know, before we go to bed. And just give it to God. And it's a joyous way to live. Um, If we continue looking at prayer and... Um, you know, conveying a message to God. Um, it just goes to show you why we should pray. And we'll move, move along to that part real quick. One of the reasons we should pray is because God tells us to. Right? God wants that relationship with us. Even those of us, even those that don't want a relationship with God, God still loves those people. God still wants a relationship with those people, right? But it's up to us to make that effort, right? To change our lives, to give our lives to God, and to be open to Him. So first we pray because we are told to by God over and over again. If we look in James 5.16... It'll say, pray for one another that you may be healed. And then we can look in First Thessalonians 
It says, pray without ceasing. Luke 22.40, pray that you may not enter in temptation. Luke 18.1, he told them a parable to the effect that they ought always to pray and not lose heart. Luke 6.28, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you. Matthew 6.9, pray then like this. And it tells us about the Lord's Prayer. And um, second, second reason, and we'll end on this note. Second reason we pray is because it is designed to increase the fullness of our joy. God wants a relationship with us. And not only is it pleasing to Him, but it's also pleasing to us. God says in John sixteen twenty four, Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask, and you will receive that your joy may be full, that your joy may be full. God did not create prayer to make us unhappy. He created it so that when we convey our hearts to God, the Father in the name of God the Son, God the Spirit moves with a fullness of joy that we would not otherwise know. If your joy in God is small, this may be part of the reason. Pray your joy may be full. And um, I'll just leave you guys with that. So please, you know, if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, start today. Start now. And if you do, continue to make that relationship stronger. And how do we do that? We've got to communicate, communicate, communicate. Pray, pray, pray. Read your word, right? Because nobody wants to hear those deathly words depart from me, right? We want to hear those words well done. So um, thank you. And we'll close in prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for your love and your mercy and your grace, Lord God. We thank you that you do want a relationship with us, Lord God. And we pray that you give us the ability, Lord God, to seek you and to honor you and to want to wholeheartedly love you, Lord God. We ask that you make it a priority in our lives to have a relationship with you, Lord Jesus. We pray, Lord God, that uh, you just give us the strength to turn to you in every situation. We pray, Lord God, that you just give us the ability to pray morning, noon, and night, like it says in the scripture, Lord God. And we just pray, Lord, that you will return those prayers with fullness of joy in our lives, Lord. So we thank you so much for all that you've done all that you're doing and all that you will do. In Jesus' name, amen.